Hi, I'm Diana Penential, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and you're listening to Call Number with American Libraries. Libraries can be a lifeline for incarcerated or detained individuals and their families. This episode, we're discussing creative programs in prison libraries. First, former ALA Executive Director Tracy D. Hall interviews poets Reginald Dwayne Betts and Randall Horton. The two were formerly incarcerated and now each spearhead their own literary programs in correctional facilities and detention centers. In the interview conducted last July, they discussed the importance of access to books while incarcerated, barriers to access faced by incarcerated people, and what they hope for ALA's newly revised standards for library services for the incarcerated or detained. Then, I speak with Lisa Prinz and Allison Sivak, two organizers of the Correspondence Book Club at the Edmonton Institution for Women in Alberta, Canada. We're joined by Mariel Silva, a formerly incarcerated individual who was a member of the club. We talk about how the year-old program is designed to provide an artistic outlet for participants. First, a word from our sponsor. Have you heard? Booklist Reader, Booklist's new book browsing guide offering reading recommendations to patrons of all ages, is now available in print. Go to booklistonline.com to find out how you can order print copies for distribution at your library. Already subscribed? Booklist subscribers can share issues digitally for free. Visit Booklist's website for more details. Reginald Dwayne Betts founded Freedom Reads, an organization that installs 500-book freedom libraries in prisons and juvenile detention centers. Randall Horton co-founded Radical Reversal, a program that conducts workshops and creates performance and recording spaces in detention centers and correctional facilities. Before her departure from ALA in October, former executive director Tracy D. Hall spoke with Betts and Horton about their work and ALA's newly revised standards for library services for the incarcerated or detained. If you can both, with Dwayne starting first, state your names. Reginald Dwayne Betts. My name is Randall Horton. Randall and Dwayne, you have had some common experiences. Of course, both of you are award-winning poets, educators, civic leaders, and also both of you have experienced being incarcerated as young men. Can you talk about the experience of incarceration on your development or the impact of incarceration on your development, both as writers and as readers? Well, I guess for me, when you talk about um, when I was incarcerated that during that period of time, I, I won't say I was an avid reader. I was an average reader, going to college and you know dropped out, and I pursued a whole other lifestyle. However, you know when I was incarcerated and received that time, I had I, I missed a lot of time on my hands, and my mother actually began to send me books while I was in um, in county jail. You know, getting ready to go up to state. And um, that's kind of where it started. I began reading these writers that they would send me. First of all, I call up church, uh, convicted in the womb. Nathan McCall makes me want to holler. But one of the things I began to notice is I began, you know, reading more. I began to understand what it meant to write. Because I had so much time on my hand, I would actually dream about, you know, the passages that I had read, you know, the, that, that night. And I could see where the commas and the periods were. And I could see why, why they used a, a semicolon and a colon, things that I never really understood. 
And so that, that really intrigued me. And so that really developed my writing. And I always assumed that being a college student and having a college degree and coming from educated parents meant you were a reader. But then I realized that, that like the thing that you're talking about now and, and when we talk about Kyle Connum, when we talk about being an artist and when we talk about the work of Radical Reversal or the work of Freedom Reads, it really is not education the way people think about education. It truly is just figuring out how do you create, like for Freedom Reads, it's creating literal libraries. But I think for all of us, it's creating literal extensions of libraries, which are intellectual playgrounds that exist. The art, the poetry and the writing became a, a vehicle and a means for us to understand the world that we live in. And education doesn't necessarily equip you to understand who you are or the world that you live in. It might, but a lot of times it doesn't. But all of this allows me to be more than whatever I was back when I was doing a bit, because it allows me to see the world as more than what I was seeing it as before I got into trouble. But it allows me to try to shape it into something that matters. And I, I think that's the other bit besides right. like feeling more human. So as you all both know, this year, thankfully, and in no small part, because of your various engagements with it, over two dozen individuals, people who have been incarcerated and librarians and people who have been incarcerated who are now working librarians participated in the creation of the 2023 edition of the Standards for Library Services for People Who Are Incarcerated. What kind of access or change in the experience of incarceration are you hoping that these standards can make possible? I think, you know, at the very core, just to sort of like rethinking the idea of what it means to have access. I mean, we live in an ever-evolving digital media, you know, multimedia world in which information, you know, shifts shapes into ways that it is accessible, including books and, you know, reading and, you know, all of those things in which you're actually, you know, gaining content to read and, and how that is delivered. But also the little nuances, you know, seep into, you know, these things in terms of the language of incarceration and, and what does that mean and how do we begin to, you know, look at people as more so individuals and, you know, begin that whole mindset too. But more so what I noticed, the idea of like rethinking what it means to have access totally, and it's huge. Because, like I said, you know, who knows where the media is going to be in the next 10 years. And so I think, you know, it was a great project to sort of like really get up to speed to what's going on in today's society. And, you know, hopefully in the next 10 years, you know, you revisit that again or what that means. Prisons are largely like black boxes and invisible spaces. And when this was first done 30 years ago, there wasn't a public conversation about incarceration. This was done because librarians felt like it was important, because the ALA felt like it was important. But it wasn't because society felt like it was important. And I think what's significant about this is the ALA coming back and saying, you know, we were thinking about this for a long time. And now let us show you how prison is really a bellwether. Because despite all of the access that we have, we also had these increased conversations around censorship in the public. And, and I think by doing this in this way, what happens is we are able to remind ourselves that if you want to know how democracy is faring, then you look at what's going on in prisons. What's terrifying is we're having a robust conversation about censorship. But what I want to have is the conversation we were having about what it meant for me to meet Lucille Clifford. Because I'm yep. talking to you today because I read those poems in a book. And, and it's just a question of what matters. Does who I am matter today more to the country, to America, to society than the crime that I committed in 1996? And if who I am today matters more than, than the significance of this report, it's, it's a step towards 
the direction where we just we have real conversations about books, robust conversations about poems, about short stories, about how we came to write and why we write. And, and right now we're not. And so I think that the significance of this report is acknowledging one, we need to be having those conversations. Two, we need to be having those conversations in prison. But three, you know, prison really is a bellwether for how you think about democracy and just analyzing the issue of censorship and access to literature in prison, how these issues actually play out in the public, particularly right now. One of the things for sure is that in the 30 years between the last iteration of those standards and the forthcoming one, we have you know, really seen not only the rise of mass or over-incarceration, but also the rise and the normalization of the privatization of prisons. And what I've noted is that that privatization has materially shifted priorities away from library services and literacy. Do you see how these two phenomena are connected? When I was in, you had a real, I mean, you got a, a library that you only have 20 people in at a time and it's 15 people in a compound. It's, it's impossible for everybody to make use of it. You got a librarian that's understaffed that has no budget to, to buy like consistent new books and, and to do um, collection upkeep. I, I think it's a lot of factors, but, but I would argue that the factors that led to libraries disappearing probably was less about the privatization of prison and, and, and generally more about the ways in which we just decided that prisons are places where we put people who we don't, who we don't care about. I was agreeing with him 100% because, you know, the internal mechanisms of prison is a commodification experience in every facet and everything that you do. You know, even if the whole system, you know, the system is sort of like hire for, for hire, the cogs that create the prison and operate everywhere you go. I mean, you know, prison shouldn't be a way in which you actually have to go broke to actually survive. Earlier this year, Congressman Emanuel Cleaver, um, who's also a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, along with other legislators, introduced the Prison Libraries Act, which, if passed, would grant a total of $60 million over six years to prisons to support library and educational services with an emphasis on digital literacy for incarcerated people and those returning to their communities as well. If that bill is successful, in what ways do you think it might impact or change some of what we're talking about now? It could be a game changer if it's actually if, you know, each system within the constitutional state is always different. You know, you have to find those pockets in which you can make that change. And then hopefully that sort of like begins to spread. So that initiative is great. But who's going to get to experience that, you know, when you got you know, a whole nation, you know what I mean? So I think we have to be really, you know, you know cognizant of that. Like in 1997, the year I got locked up, California spent $3.8 billion on incarceration. Out of that $3.8 billion that they spent, $360 million derived from the need to, you know, house, feed, and take care of additional people that got incarcerated that year. Um, so, so we see that $60 million for the whole nation is like a drop in a bucket. I, I got locked. I came home in 2006, 2005. I was like, wait, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a movement to get people out of prison? Mass incarceration is a thing? Oh, right. shit, it just must not have trickled down to me. Ten years later, I'm deep in the work. I'd have been at congressional briefings. I'd have been at state houses. I'd have written books. I'd go talk to my homies in prison, and they was like, oh, shit, they got that going on? Man, I hope it really does something for us. Right. And I still hear that today. 
So, you yeah. know, like we, we, we still function in trick, trickle down economics. And I, and I would argue that that 60 million is a good push. And, and the way that it will help folks as far as like, first and foremost, you know, I got a lot of respect and appreciation for librarians and, and working in a prison is the most thankless job. And I bet even within the profession, they probably get ridiculed or demeaned um, depending on where they work by their peers for doing the work because you're going into a prison filled with people who are incarcerated ostensibly for crimes they committed. And America does not like people who are in prison. And so I think what the 60 million says, at least on the first blush, is that you have your national leaders willing to pass a law that values your work. And this is really about valuing the work of librarians. And so I think that that is the essential thing. And I think that if the money really gets to the librarians, then it really will get to the people on the ground. But like, ultimately, it's just the start. There is so much contestation over the right to read. Censorship efforts are at an all-time high. And, and many who seek to restrict books in mostly school or public libraries admit that they haven't even read the titles. Yet, in many ways, people who are incarcerated have been experiencing censorship as an everyday, normalized experience with books being restricted because they talk about individual or civil rights or all the other reasons that books are being censored. And I have the experience, you know, myself of having a cousin who served at Pelican Bay, who's in my age group. And um, as I was uh, becoming a young woman and a librarian, sending him books and seeing so many of them returned until I began to figure out what the formula was, what would pass and what wouldn't. And often it was the text that, you know, talked more about opportunities really for transcendence and self-determination agency. Why do you think censorship efforts are running so rampant lately? And did you ever experience censorship personally when you were incarcerated? Truth is, I didn't experience any censorship because we got what we wanted the way we needed to get it. I think what I experienced was the first five years, there was no library. So if you have no library, you have no censorship. So I just want to be clear, like I get frustrated by the conversation of censorship because it's not about me. It's not about my friends in prison. It's just not about us. The people who making these decisions about books are often undereducated people who not just haven't read the book, but don't have time to read the book. They, they have no guidelines for what they're looking for. They have no understanding of why they should be making a decision. I never experienced censorship in prison, but I experienced censorship outside of prison when I mailed a question of freedom into Virginia prisons and, and they banned it because I had a chapter called How to Make a Knife in Prison. Do I think that that was, that was like unlawful censorship on the surface? Of course not. I, I've watched people get stabbed in prison. And I just happened to have a friend that was a lawyer. We drafted a cease and desist order. We got an email from the assistant attorney general in the state of Virginia. She called us. And she was like, what's going on? I said, listen, I, they banned the book because of this line, but I think they completely misreading the passage. I don't think they read the passage at all. And I think they did it for these reasons. And she was like, well, let me read the book. Can you mail me a copy of the books? And then they, they was like, yeah, it was a mistake. And they gave all the books back. But why we don't hear that story? I'm sorry. I just don't want to be obsessed over the failures because I'm trying to be obsessed over freedom. If I look back on it, I think I was more so denied access to books more than I was censored. There was no physical library. You had to order 100%, 100%. everything. And then a guy come around in the cart and he got your book. You know, I had to learn how to order books in prison if I wanted to read. So that's the first thing. So I'm, I don't even know. I'm not even thinking about censorship. I'm trying to figure out what it is I need to read, how I need to read. So for me, everybody could be different. Every book that I requested, I always got. Randall, what's next for Radical Reversal? 
We're in the process of upgrading and expanding to what we call the Radical Nine. We're going to be expanding our installations and working with community partners, educational partners in California, Massachusetts, Florida, Connecticut. We're actually working on a project inside the Suffolk County House of Corrections with Merrimack College. Uh, we're getting ready to start college credit classes and a pathway to be on campus at Merrimack. You know, our goal is for its expansion, sort of like to create these senses of creative activity. Thank you, Randall. And Dwayne, what's next for Freedom Read? My next phase of the work is how to make any other thing that I'm doing or Randall's doing or anybody is doing. It's so important that it has a real national footprint that rivals the footprint that now exists in the public conversation around censorship. Because, yes, we need to defeat that. But we only defeat it by getting the public to talk about what really matters, which is all the reasons why we went to books in the first place. Unlike other collection development and reader's advisory tools and publications, subscriptions to Booklist and Booklist Reader help drive the mission of ALA. Not only are you receiving the most trustworthy and reliable content in the industry, but your support also helps ALA advocate on behalf of libraries and assist those facing an unprecedented number of book challenges. Subscribe now at booklistonline.com. In 2022, University of Alberta in Edmonton launched its Correspondence Book Club at the Edmonton Institution for Women. The program provides women who are incarcerated with themed writing and art-making prompts. To learn more, I talked with Lisa Prinz, Manager of Adult and Community Education, and Allison Sivak, Faculty Engagement Librarian, both at the University of Alberta. We were joined by Mariel Silva, a formerly incarcerated individual and former book club participant. The first question I have is for Allison. Um, how did the idea for the Correspondence Book Club come about? And what needs in the Edmonton Institution did you recognize that you wanted to meet? It came together through sort of a confluence of things. One of them was that I'm part of a group of librarians who have volunteered at various prisons in the Edmonton area for the past 16 or so years. And we have run book clubs with books before. Lisa and I were also both part of an initiative at the University of Alberta that brought university classes into the EIFW. Um, it's a program called Walls to Bridges. It's sort of national in scope, and it also is modeled after the Inside Out program in the United States. We had a couple classes, and the second class got interrupted by COVID. In the tail end of the pandemic, we were hoping to be able to offer the class again, but there were real COVID problems in terms of people's health, the institution, and, and volunteers getting in. So we kind of came up with this idea of like, let's modify the idea of a book club and do it in a way that includes like readings from the course that we would offer or that we would be participating with. During pandemic, uh, Lisa's program, Humanities 101, ran a radio show in which they encouraged people to listen to episodes and then share their own stories back. And there was really great uptake from women at the EIFW. And so it was kind of like this real mix of things. And really, I think the need in our mind was we said we were going to be here and do something together and we can't be here. So what's another way for us to share some of the resources of our institution? And Lisa, this question is for you. Can you briefly describe what the book club entails? 
So what we've been doing is dropping off packages every two weeks. And in those packages are readings, art, poems, essays, articles, a whole host of things uh, that can be printed. And they're always printed in color because the libraries is super generous and really make sure that can happen because it's important. And with a page of activities, there's always a written prompt or an art prompt. And they're all put together in a manila envelope. And then we actually have people or ourselves, depending on what part of the academic cycle we're in, that individualize each of the envelopes. Now, this question is for Mariel. Um, what motivated you to join the book club? Honestly, the institution is definitely lacking in things to do. When I got into the institution, I just kind of hit the ground running. I signed up for everything that I possibly could. Seeing these ladies every two weeks was just, it just made everything better. I'm not a morning person and I would wake up for them. That's, that's how good it was. <laughs> I didn't actually have any expectations. I didn't know what it was about or how to go about doing anything. And, and they just, it was definitely just something wonderful and creative to do. Allison, I'm wondering if you could go a little bit more in detail of what were the prompts in the packages like and what kinds of readings were provided? We're on the fourth cycle of book club. And every time we have done it, there's always been a focus uh, primarily on Indigenous peoples, Indigenous peoples' creations, tradition, creative works, in some part because there's a really grossly high proportion of the people incarcerated who are Indigenous in the Canadian context. And what we wanted to do is really kind of focus not on sort of this idea of like, oh, here are readings to, for lack of a better term, to make you rehabilitated. It's more like, let's read something beautiful. Let's read something funny. Let's laugh. Let's capitalize on the strengths that you have as a writer. And that's something I got to say that Lisa and I and Jessica Thorlikson, our other continuing collaborator, just were knocked out by Marielle's written work. She just brings like sort of a joy and a humor to it that it was a kind of beautiful response. So it's important to us that people just get to play as they learn, that people get to choose whether or not they participate or not. People can say, I'm not going to respond to your prompts and share them with you. And that's fine. They'll keep getting envelopes if they want. If they do share something that they've done, then we'll write a letter back. And uh, the thing that's nice about that is you start to get to know each other a teeny bit, right? That helps when we're all sitting together. We're like, oh, that was such a good thing that you did. That was such a neat piece. What was your favorite thing to do? It's really nice to be able to sort of just focus on like, what are some things we like to think about, learn together and create together and not focusing on the institution's goals. We don't have to, we get to adhere by like, let's see each other's people. So the kinds of prompts that we have, they include things like a poem model that we follow from George Ella Lyons, who's an Appalachian poet called Where I'm From. And so it's a series of prompts about like, name these physical objects from your childhood or your life that kind of encapsulate some of who you are. And people just write these knockout poems. We did a fun one where we looked at Indigenous roller derby teams, kind of spirit of play. We get to do this really cool thing that we don't have to grade, that doesn't come with measures, that people can just participate however they want without consequence because we are uniquely positioned in an institution that is supporting it, right? So we're not part of something that has to pedal off 
moments of transformation or success to gain funds. Like we're hard funded. It's super low key. It's really what we have. And so we don't have to do that hustle and that trade-off. So I just think that's always exciting to have those unique spaces that do exist within libraries, within universities, within these kind of more public institutions. The first thing that we actually did was the question poem, which was inspired by... um... Pablo Neruda, who was a Chilean poet. Like, I'm Chilean, my family's Chilean, and my aunt and uncle, they they used to have, like, tea with him. It was just a weird connection, and that's that's what really got me excited. I'm like, well, this is interesting. That the, Like, it was meant to be that the first one that I did had something to do with, like, a Chilean poet that I knew plenty of. So that brought us closer together very quick. It feels great to just be able to do something creative and not be, like marked for it we look forward to uh your little letters like if you don't hand something in obviously they can't write anything about it and there have been times where i thought like i did and i didn't and i didn't get anything and uh, there's some disappointment there but the feedback is great and mariel this is another question for you what was your favorite activity and why and did you get to submit any of your work in the magazine that was part of the book club i submitted i think everything that i had written to the magazine my favorite one, probably the recipe, writing out your favorite recipe, which mine was cheesy buns. And I'm not a baker. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't bake, but my cheesy buns are just on point. So I wrote it in a way where if you're actually following the recipe, you will deal with the same things like sticky hands and, you know, you want to punch the dough as if you're letting out some steam. You know, just, I did it, wrote it in a way where people could laugh at it and actually, if they followed along with it, they could have fun with it too. So, can you share any other outcomes from the program and what other feedback or responses have you heard from other members? We've sat down and had some intentional conversations around feedback to make sure what we're doing makes sense for people and it's what people want to be reading and what people want to be watching or listening or looking at. We want to make sure it's wanted, what the content and the themes. But I think the feedback comes in the moments of us learning things and getting excited and hearing what people want. Somebody says they like horses. We're going to find something with horses. You know, somebody asked for horoscopes. Why haven't we been doing horoscopes? Yeah. yeah. So let's get some horoscopes in there. And then in some nice cases, like I feel like we develop a friendship. Right. So relationship with someone that we really enjoy each other. And that that's a that's a gift. Were there any other interesting stories where a prompt sprouted something incredible? We don't have to sort of uh, report back on transformational moments in order to sort of maintain our institution support for doing this or continue to be allowed in. We don't think that we're doing anything huge. But at the same time, we also hear stories, for example, of someone saying, oh, like I wrote this one with my kids. Like we were talking on the phone or we were talking video and we wrote this one together. Or here are some stories when I grew up in a very traditional way um, and I'm just sharing some of those and some of my drawings and people just making beautiful, beautiful jewelry. And to me, like those are transformational moments for me. These two really help create a safe environment for everybody. The fact that they're just so warm and welcoming, you can let down your walls very quickly with them. And being in the institution, you do have to try and figure out who you can do that with. So they're really great at just letting you feel comfortable and loved right from the get-go. So 
And then Mariel, overall, what was a highlight for you while participating in the program? I think just having something creative to do. I'm a creative person. I love art and music. So to have someone else prompt you to do something, because, you know, you run out of ideas when you're inside. I think that's that's a big highlight, just to have something to do. I am a night owl. So like 10 p.m., that's when I wake up and that's when I would do all my writing. And it felt good to write something and share it with them. I'm wondering if you have any advice for librarians or anyone else who would want to implement a similar program? I think the key to doing something like this is collaboration and relationships. If you're a librarian doing it, you know, find another interesting group of people that are willing to partner with you, right? So we partner with Humanities 101, partnered with people at the Faculty of Native Studies for the first round. You build better packages because you've got more ideas. You're able to talk through together, like how you're going to share out the work. I mean, if you're trying to convince your organization or your library that that this is worth you doing, I think one thing is, is like, look at us building strong relationships with people and with organizations and making something possible. I think showing up is important. Like whatever you commit to do, you're going to do it, right? So that means showing up every two weeks. That means making sure that we wrote the letters. That means apologizing and actually just taking responsibility when we make a mistake. Because we made a lot of mistakes. I forgot to return this. I put the wrong name on your magazine submission. I'm sorry. Let me make that right. Because I think that's a nice thing in a place in which it has very sort of rigid rules about who is always right and who is always wrong. I think people forget about play and the deep value in play uh, and just what it means to get to have some buds to play with, you know, like at its core, it makes an intimacy right away. It can bring joy. It's a low risk, yet pretty high risk too, right? There's vulnerabilities in there, way to just start to connect with someone. So we definitely are playful and we also get to be the best of that place. And I mean, well, I mean, I don't know if there's a best of a place inside of an institution, you know, but again, because it's not a program, we're not trying, people don't have to prove themselves. I think that also allows for some of that quick kind of play. It's wonderful to feel like a person when they show up, you are treated like a human being. And that is something that you struggle with when you are an inmate, you are considered an inmate and or offender or whatever word they want to use for you and you lose the person so to have them come in and just talk to you like a normal human being and it's not about your offense it's all about growth and creativity it's definitely important and definitely needed in those types of institutions have you heard Booklist Reader, Booklist's new book browsing guide offering reading recommendations to patrons of all ages, is now available in print. Go to booklistonline.com to find out how you can order print copies for distribution at your library. Already subscribed? Booklist subscribers can share issues digitally for free. Visit Booklist's website for more details. Next episode is our 2023 author chats, featuring never-before-released interview clips from some of the authors, actors, and activists we spoke to this year. Is there a story or topic you'd like us to cover next? Let us know via email or social media. Thanks for listening.